Hello there, and welcome to the Two Rivers Cafe podcast, where music and the creative arts prop up the bar, nursing pints of a popular Irish stout, and taking full advantage of the complimentary nuts. I'm Andrew Fisher, composer and lyricist, and collaboration with other creative people is one of the great joys in my life. Each episode, I'm joined by an artist who works with music to talk about their experiences. Expect honesty, insight, a few laughs, and the odd happy accident as we collaborate to create something new before your very ears. This week, I'm joined by Liz Kenny, who is one of Europe's leading lute players, who has for 20 years performed with many of the world's best period instrument groups, including the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment and the Theatre of the Air. She often collaborates with singers such as Robin Blaze, Nicholas Mulroy and Ian Bostridge, and has made many wonderful and acclaimed recordings of Laws, Purcell and Dowland. Hello, Liz. Good morning, Andy. I don't know a lot about the lute, apart from the fact that it's a bit like the guitar and was basically popular in the Renaissance and Baroque period, so 17th century-ish. How did you get into it? Completely by accident. I was offered a chance to learn the lute when I was a teenager and learning classical guitar. And I thought that sounds really boring. So I'm not going to do that because it's really restrictive and dull. So I turned it down. Um, then about eight years later, came back to study guitar as a postgrad. And um, they had some instruments around and I was sort of intrigued and beginning to get interested um, and actually it was a way of being a beginner at something because I was a very late developer on the musical background front. And I realized that through the lute, I could actually learn about things like harmony and improvisation and things that I didn't know how to do, but didn't know how to admit that I didn't know how to do. So I really did it for all the wrong reasons and then just got gradually sucked in and hooked and found myself not playing the guitar anymore. What's the main difference between a lute and a guitar? The most obvious thing that I didn't know, and most people don't know, is that when you say the lute, we mean about 10, 12 different instruments and different tunings, and some of them are a bit like a 12-string guitar strung with pairs of strings, so you have to sort of pluck two at the same, at the same time, and others are strung with single strings. They vary in size from about 40 centimetres, very little treble high-pitched lutes, to the big theorbo. Um, that I believe is going to be the basis for our um, collaboration, creation. Uh, and that's the one that I use that's the equivalent, really, of a bass guitar. And then there's every shape and size in between for all different kinds of music. Um, philosophically, I got to quite like it because unlike the violin or the piano or anything else, it never became standardised. It's much more like the banjo, where you don't know what the person's going to turn up with, really, customize the tuning to the music and the resonance of how your strings are tuned and the shape of the instrument influences how the music's written. You've, you've dedicated your whole life to music. Do you still enjoy it? What's it like to de dedicate your whole life to music? I'm not sure I have really. Actually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've always thought of myself as one of those musicians that if the musical outlet wasn't there, there'd be something else. Um, so initially I wasn't going to do it at all. Um, you know, I didn't know anyone who was a musician. I didn't know this was a possibility. I knew that I did enjoy it. And then there is a certain sense when you start doing something to try and earn your living or that you feel people are 
assessing you or judging you in you know in the kind of musical ecology that that robs you of the the sort of carefree spirit and I think you have to work ironically you have to work quite hard to get that back um and so now I'd say that more than ever I really do enjoy it um and I think that's partly because around it I mean you and I met at Southampton University um so we both intertwine doing our own thing musically or have done with with bits of teaching I'm now in a different role at Royal Academy of Music that involves thinking about quite a lot of other issues as well to do with student life and politics and the way the world is in the 21st century and I find that that is a really nice foil because it means that when I get stuck into either practicing or rehearsing I value that musical activity even more than I did when I was touring all the time and thinking about only that, that there's a lightness to it that I can now enjoy again. Right now you're you're working on Purcell's Dido and Aeneas at the Royal Academy, which is possible to stream online. I watched it last night and I enjoyed it immensely. Congratulations to everyone involved. What do you like about the work? I mean, it's a real make them laugh, make them cry kind of show. The range of musical and emotional expression is huge. You know, you you have to cry at the end with the amazing lament, but there are also some laughs along the way. And we have a great production and, you know, young people who are really uh, searching for the funny, um, which is wonderful. Um, and it's what I like about 17th century music, actually, that it's not either tragedy or comedy you have great, so it's a bit, in a way, it's related to musical theatre in that sense that you don't have to put it in the box of either a serious opera or a farce, you know, and I think those things became a little bit more codified later. So I love that about it. I love that the music that's written down is, there's some wonderful counterpoint for the string players. We're doing it with a essentially a string quartet lineup. And we're doing the choruses with only four singers. So you can really hear the interplay of independent lines, um, which is uh, fantastic. But there are, of course, other passages where there, there's room to overlay some risks, some danger, some improvisation. Um, so I think it, for me, it just has everything. And it's only 55 minutes long, which yes. is also <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Liz and I are going to base our collaboration on a passacaglia from Purcell's opera. Don't worry if you don't know it. I know opera can be marmite for some, but stick with us and I think you'll enjoy hearing what we do. Liz, the passacaglia, can you tell us a little bit about it? What's its role in the show? Well, in fact, it's a bit of Purcell that Purcell didn't write. There's a, okay. a cue in the libretto, in the words, saying, um, hear the guitars play a passacaglia, and that's nothing. Um, and... That's where the performance practice is kind of fun rather than restrictive. We know there were guitar players who also played the lute, who were knocking around at Charles II's court. They had careers in England. There's not much English music. And yet here they are in a personal show. What were they doing? It's probably something to do with French guitar music that was very popular at the court at that time. There was a sort of guitar craze. And there were standard chord progression patterns that people just learned. And you could buy one off the shelf in an expensive guitar book done by a famous player who wrote down their own improvisation. Or you could do your own if you just learned the chords. 
though everyone would know that Passacaglia meant two things, a dance feel, slow, in triple time, also a set sequence of chords on a kind of descending bass that often had a slightly wistful, melancholy feel. show as we do it and as would have been done probably at certain points the continuo line is just a bass line it's shared by the lutes the guitars the harpsichords we all have the same line and we just alternate when we play and how we play if we're all playing together we'll try and um, have the same collective sense of where the music's going but sometimes it might be just one person improvising if there's somebody singing over the top then there are certain harmonic constraints that what you do has to match that. What I'm really looking forward to is you doing something different uh, that has a different kind of grammar on top of that, because for me, it's a cue to play these chords in a certain way with a certain amount of variation, but within um, the complaint, the complaints, within the constraints of the grammar as it was then. And of course, that's the thing that, that changes over time, you know, is what you put on top of that. As a wonderful Freudian slip, the complaints of the... <laughs> <laughs> Anticipated complaints under the line. Absolutely. <laughs> it's now two days later. Liz, welcome back. You've sent me your marvellous improvisations and I've been working on them. Um, but before we get to the collaboration, and as I think about how we learn creativity, can I just ask... Does improvisation come easily to you? I'd say that for a lot of classically trained musicians, improvisation was quite scary. We're trained, you know, not to hear our own voices until we allow ourselves to be perfect. And I talk about that with students quite a lot. With improvisation, you don't improvise anything that's beyond your own technical capacity or, imag or musical imagination, probably more interestingly. Um, so you can very much start to have within, and again, there are parallels with jazz, within a very formalized set of harmony rules, there is nonetheless room to sound like yourself. So it's that tension between freedom and structure is where the creativity lies. With, and that's kind of what interests me. I'm not yet very good, although I hope to be one day uh, a little better at totally free improvisation. I completely empathise. I learned classically myself and used to spend many hours doing playful improvisation as a, as a keyboard as a kid, which was never really encouraged by the system, but happily was by my folks. Whilst I got into composition and jazz and forged by path, I do wish formal classical curricula could actively include training that would encourage the practice of creativity, especially for children when they're learning music, rather than just emphasising rote learning. Children are inherently creative. And thinking about it, we do play music. That's the word we use. There should be some space for play. In the end, I got two recordings from Liz. One was 
a live extract from an actual production of Didonius given at the Royal Academy recently. And then the other was a solo recording in a slightly different key. Here's a recording Liz made for me. It's terrific. I really enjoyed the reharmonizations and the way you get such different dynamic colors out of the material on the Theorbo. It's such a distinctive timbre, especially in the hands of a master. I've been working on my part of the collaboration for the last two days, building on the beautiful improvisation on the Purcell that Liz has sent me. I'll be honest, I'm in two minds about it. I'm not sure it completely works, but it's what I could do in the time. Let's have a listen to part of it. Stay tuned to the end to hear the full version. I'm calling it the Purcell Fantasia.
my goal with this was to try and find places to foreground the Theobo performances of Liz, to to put them in as they are, as as found music. And so one solution was to write a tune against it and then to put my tune in counterpoint to Liz's playing um, and to try and keep out of the way. So there's a couple of places where I'm doing that. Um, in other parts of the arrangement, I, I'm trying to be playful with style and move between styles quite radically. And I'm also playing with quotes and adding some quotes from different parts of Purcell. It's a little bit of a hodgepodge, but there's also a kind of playful and unexpectedness to it that I rather like. Liz, I'm dying to know, what did you think? Oh, I loved it very much. Um, it wasn't quite what I imagined, which is always good because I don't want to be limited by my own imagination. So yours has a completely different sweep to it. But it also wasn't just taking that thread and sort of orchestrating it or adding to it in a sonic way, which of course um, you did, but it also seemed to have a different narrative arc as well. The fact you took both recordings and one was more buried inside other things and then emerged into the second one um, was something that I wouldn't have imagined from that fragment at all. I really loved that it had that the use the pitch change, which for me is a kind of administrative nightmare of playing sometimes at low baroque pitch, sometimes at modern pitch. And I'm used to seeing that as just something we have to deal with, but you made it into a musical journey from the lower to the higher. I was wondering how you might do that, kind of half imagining a Eurovision shift. Okay, now we're higher and we're kind of- Yes, absolutely. Now. This is the but, key change, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I almost didn't notice until it had happened and I realized we were in a different place. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and I like the energy, the kind of filmic um, sense to it, that that had that visual element. If I'm honest, I was a little bit nervous because there's a kind of, we use the word cod in front of things to sort of <laughs> mean a, a sort of bad homage. Like, is, and I was wondering, is this cod baroque? One thing about that particular chord sequence, it's, it's so simple. It underpins so many other pieces of music over the next 300, 400 years. Clearly there's something about it. You know, the first two chords pull to the third and then there's a relaxation and then you go back again. And that is a, a scaffolding that so many pieces in so many different eras build on. In the arrangement, I've, I've quoted a few Baroque things, you know, so if this piece has a title, it's kind of like a Purcellian Fantasia. When you hear things like the famous Rondo, little fragments of it, do you smile or do you groan? I, I, I wish to be respectful, um, but there's a kind of like, is it a reverence work? We're dealing with Purcell, I must bring, you know, my most solemn, sacred reverence. And I suppose I'm, I'm asking, do you think I was reverential enough? Reverential always worries me a bit. Yeah, no, me too. Me too. <laughs> Sometimes I, I'm more likely to hear something being too reverential um, than not reverential enough. I mean, particularly in terms of volume and resource and modulation and things. Um, some of the things that I find less interesting are, say, if you play nowadays, you know, a symphony orchestra can play a piece of Baroque music. But in about 20 years ago, when we were all still fighting with each other about whose music belonged to who, and whether they should be allowed to do that and whether we should be allowed to play modern stuff. I felt like the symphony orchestra would always play within a really narrow dynamic range as a kind of out of respect for the older music. But when you think of 
those instruments were always playing to the limit of their range. It's just to us, it sounds mezzo. And to me, it would always sound like you were driving this massive car, but we're never going out of first gear. Yes. Which is a bit disappointing. I really like just taking the kernel and then yeah. doing, you know, playing with the limits of your own resources. That's a great image. Yes, the frustration, the teeth grinding <laughs> frustration. Can we go to second gear? This thing's capable of 180. Why are we driving it 10 miles now? But also that, I mean, using that rondo is, is kind of interesting for me, you know, like most people in the universe, I didn't grow up with Baroque music. So the first time I heard that was the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. Britain, yes. Yeah, you yeah. know, as a sort of first taster of classical music for young people, it's a very clever choice because it has a hook. It has variety, but it also has repetition, which for, um, you know, someone like me who didn't understand the forms of classical music, that was very approachable. So in a way, it's got a nice sense of one generation nodding to another, nodding to another, nodding to another, which um, I think is is great. So I think it's quite cool that you picked that picked that particular piece with all those resonances. I don't know if that was in your mind, but... Um, but a, li um, a little bit. I, part of it is it also fits harmonically with lots of things. Mm -hmm. that, um, and, and the switch from... So I did a Mancini-esque sort of a quotation of when i'm laid in earth which i sort of reharmonized and i was again nervous about that because like this is a beautiful song and a very poignant moment in dido and I, I wasn't trying to take the mickey or anything with it but it was i was trying to be playful and that, that's kind of a fine a fine balance and there's and there's the exciting thing about music i suppose is also that there's always a new version there's always a new way to play it and hear it and experience it and challenge it that's 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 exciting isn't it that the playfulness will never stop i suppose we hope <laughs> Liz, it's been a real pleasure to have you as guest on the podcast. It's been great to talk about loot and to hear your wonderful Theorbo. Thank you so much for your time, company, insights, and your fantastic playing. Thank you very much indeed. Let's finish the show with Purcell Fantasia in full by me, Andrew Fisher, and featuring Liz Kenny on the Theorbo.
Thanks for joining me at the Two Rivers Cafe podcast. And thanks again to Liz Kenny for her time, talent and patience. You can find out more about Liz's career via her website, the link to which is in the episode description. This is also the place to find out more about my life as a composer. My name is Andrew Fisher, and this episode of the Two Rivers Cafe podcast was produced remotely, as ever, by the brilliant Jim and Rupert of Driver 8. If you enjoyed it, then please tell your friends to subscribe. Look out for the next episode when it arrives, but in the meantime, why not use an already existing artwork as a starting point for your next bit of creativity?